Welcome, friends, to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. That's Charles Haddon Spurgeon, born in 1834, died in 1892, known as the Prince of Preachers, a man of God whose gift in preaching Christ and his Bible is uh, unparalleled, perhaps not just in his own age, but in many ages. A man who uh, takes his proper place among those who have been distinctly gifted down through the centuries to make known their saviour. My name is Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to uh, walk us through some of the sermons that Charles Spurgeon preached week by week. And if you want to follow along, you can find out what we're reading at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. Or you can go to www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts and there you'll find a link to the heart of Spurgeon and you can sign up for uh, a weekly newsletter where you can find out each time what we're reading in any particular week. This week it's sermons 374 through to 380, 374 to 380. And each week we identify and zero in on a selected sermon. That's the featured sermon for the week. It's the topic for our podcast. And we're aiming to give a representative sample of Spurgeon's ministry. So this week, perfect cleansing. And then next week, sermon 383, the missionary's charge and charter. This week then, perfect cleansing from uh, the text Joel 3. Verse 21, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. Spurgeon preached this sermon on Sunday morning, the 7th of April, 1861, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, uh, fairly recently opened at that stage. He begins with some uh, exegetical explanation. What is this text saying and to whom? Some, he says, think that it has reference to the blood of the persecuted and martyred Israel. And he's not saying that that's irrelevant, but he wants to take the text in a more simple and he thinks after a more spiritual sort. The great truth which lies at the foundation of the gospel system, the blood of Christ, God's dear son, cleanses us from all sin. This is something that is significant for all of God's people and he wants to take it as it's set forth in measure in this text. Settle it in your own minds, he says, that neither experience nor any of the teachings of diverse heretics will ever rob you from this truth, that he who by faith lays hold on Christ has his blood cleansed in that same hour and all his iniquities put away. But if that's so, how are we to understand the text? So he says, we need to grasp that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are made clean. Once the blood of Christ is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, we are forgiven. So in what sense then can we understand the text, I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed? And again, he says, now we're looking at it in that sense. We need to uh, acknowledge some genuine possibilities. So among them, the fact that there are those who are not yet brought in from among God's elect who are yet to be cleansed of their sins and have the blood of Christ applied to their hearts, in which case it might be said of them, I will cleanse their blood that I have not yet cleansed. But 
he thinks he's speaking primarily of the the people of God, two senses in which believers in Christ have blood which as yet has not been cleansed. So those who already belong to Jesus Christ, these two senses. And on the one hand, he identifies a certain consciousness of sin. And secondly, that there is still uh, remaining uh, sin in the heart of God's people. So there's the consciousness of sin and there's the battle against sin. And he's saying that in each case, we need to have our uh, cleansed, uh, our blood cleansed that has not yet been cleansed. So with regard to the first, guilt upon the conscience. And what Spurgeon does here is to divide this up into two particular senses, the guilt of sin and to some extent as well the power of sin, although that's mainly his second main point. And he begins by saying, what's the problem if you have guilt upon a troubled conscience, if you haven't yet grasped that you have indeed been forgiven? What is the consequence of this? He says, if our faith were what it should be, we should know that there is no condemnation against the man that believes in Christ. If our faith were always simple and had a clear eye to look alone to the Saviour, we should always view ourselves as being in the sight of God accepted in the Beloved. And so sometimes our assurance is shaken. The soul is justified but doubts its justification. And he says, I think I can soon prove that very many of us have some guilt remaining upon our conscience. In the first place, what is that which ever makes us doubt our eternal salvation? We've believed in Christ and yet we doubt. Why is that? That there is some still some guilt still remaining on our conscience. If we knew ourselves to be what we really are, if we be believers, guiltless, innocent, pure, clean every whit, do you think we should have any doubt of our salvation? But he says when conscience then has its secret stain, therefore doubts creep in so often and in this way, we begin to wonder whether or not we are genuinely delivered from our sins. And he said, if this blood upon the conscience were cleansed away, we should never, never doubt again. So here is our first challenge. It is the fact that when there is guilt upon the conscience, our assurance is easily shaken. And then a second impact when there's guilt upon the conscience. There are times when we think very hardly of God. That is, that we think that God is dealing with us uh, unfairly or severely. That he will perhaps abandon us, that he will let us sink at last. And he compares it with Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Why do you say that? Why can you speak so certainly? Because you know yourself to be perfectly cleansed from sin. And then you'd be willing to leave everything in his hands and not have this lurking suspicion, perhaps, that God has to punish you still for your sins. That in his fatherly chastisement, there is mixed something penal. That is, that God is punishing you as if you were not his son because of some remaining sin. And so you have these suspicious thoughts of God. Furthermore, when you've got this kind of sin upon your conscience, 
Many of us dare not indulge in close access to our God. We can't speak to our Father the way a child speaks to a father, even here upon earth. We cannot lay hold upon God as one who's near to us by ties of divine affinity. Too many Christians, he says, are outer court worshippers because we're not persuaded that we've been brought in and brought near to our God and Saviour by his Son, Jesus Christ. And so we stay at a distance. We're, we're lurking at a distance. We are uh, not uh, as confident as we could and should be that we have these particular mercies, these particular favours. Then there's another consequence when there's guilt remaining upon our hearts. There's a promise. Why don't we lay hold upon it? Why don't we believe what God has said? Well, because perhaps we think we're not worthy of it. But then there's your problem. You think that you're under the covenant of works instead of being under the covenant of grace. When were you ever worthy of God's mercy? But when you have a conscience that is troubled, you tend to think in terms of your worthiness, or perhaps more specifically, your unworthiness. Then another fact which demonstrates at once that the conscience of some believers is not totally purged from sin. Why are people afraid to die? Why is my sister fearing death? Why does my brother tremble when he knows that he carries a disease about him which may on a sudden launch him into eternity? asks Spurgeon. And here's the challenge then, that when we have guilt upon our conscience, we cannot look forward without fear to the day of our death. It's a, it's a trouble to us. It's a challenge to us. It shakes our confidence with regard to what lies ahead. But when death is no more the gate of gloom, but the portal of the skies, and we know it, shall we tremble then? No, perfectly pardoned, with a conscience recognising and rejoicing in that perfect pardon, all fears of death would be impossible. And so, says Spurgeon, we have many of us guilt still upon our conscience, and we see it because at times we doubt our salvation, we have these hard thoughts of God, we neglect to approach the mercy seat with the freedom that we actually should have, we tremble to take the promise at the full, we are afraid of dying. All of these prove that the blood is not entirely cleansed from off the conscience. You see how Spurgeon is working here from the experience of God's people to the, uh, the doctrine that he's trying to draw out. That if it were not the case that there were no more cleansing required, then none of these things would be issues. You need then this promise. You need God to tell you that he can and will cleanse what has not yet been cleansed with regard to your conscience. Remember, Spurgeon isn't saying that you are only half clean. What he's saying here in this aspect is that your ongoing sense of your sin, as if God has not forgiven you, puts you at this disadvantage. So sit still a moment, he says. Chew the cud of meditation. Put the promise into your mouth and taste its preciousness. Great God, you will yet by your grace take from my conscience and the conscience of all your people every stain of sin. Then no doubts, but full assurance. 
then the throne of God becomes precious and we enter in to all the promises. Then we have the, the conscious confidence, the, the joy and the expectation of what lies ahead. We know that if the great enemy sin has been conquered, we shall not fear the little enemy death. If the hell within us has been quenched, we shall know that there can be no hell without us for us. We shall long for evening to undress, that we may rest with God, and having on the wedding garment, we shall be ready to enter into the marriage supper with joys and shoutings. These are the uh, the thanks, thankful expectations that we have. And if God fulfills this promise to us and cleanses our conscience from any blood guiltiness which as yet has not been cleansed, we will praise and magnify him forever. So you see how Spurgeon takes this as a promise, as an assurance, and he says, what would change in you if God were pleased to make this more and more your experience? But now he moves on from justification to sanctification. It is thrice blessed to live daily and continually under a system of grace, he says, which gives a perfect deliverance from the guilt of sin, but this can never be separated from the desire to know the dispensation in its deliverance from the power of sin. So it's not just the guilt, but also the power of sin from which we need to be delivered. And uh, he uh, points out that so often the way that the Wesleyans speak of perfection may actually be just confusion of language, that it's often nothing more than the justification of a Calvinist. But his point is that corruption of the flesh remains even in the regenerate. That anybody who claims to be perfect in the wrong sense, um, that that person is is speaking nonsense. Let me then in a sorrowful spirit, he says, show some of those signs which prove to us the indwelling of sin still. And he uses example like a, a hasty temper or uh, his uh, some other frailty of your minds, he talks about. You've tossed on your bed sleepless because your eyes wouldn't shut because they're bursting with tears because you have sinned in a way that your soul hates. You've said something, you've done something which uh, crushes you with a sense of your sin and your guilt. Uh, if you could maintain at all times the same purity of heart, the same loveliness of disposition, the same charity of carriage or uh, behaviour, the same holiness of bearing, I would to God that I too might sit where you have sat to learn the lesson which you've learnt so well. But often we are spoiled spoiled by the temptations that come upon us, by the responses of our hearts to Satan and the, uh, the, the fiery sparks that are around us. Oh, says Spurgeon, I'm sure if you've watched yourself with but half an eye, you must feel that in those daily acts which the ungodly call mere trifles, but which you know to be solemn things, there are signs that there is blood in you which has not been cleansed. Now, we might say, uh, Spurgeon is now stretching the text a little bit. That is, uh, exegesis, which he tried to do so carefully at the front end, has uh, given way to a desire to make a few practical points. But the practical points themselves are still worth hearing. Haven't you felt, he says, that if you did not hate sin for anything else, you must hate it because it would not let you serve God and serve his church as you could desire? There's this appetite you want, 
Why do we doubt our God again, he says. Some men make light of doubts as though they were little sins, but to doubt God is the most damnable of crimes. And this is moving him now from his first point, the guilt of sin, toward this second main point, the power of sin. And you notice how he's almost flipped it or he's uh, adjusted it now because he's done something similar in that he's proved the need of a promise that will be that the power of sin will be overcome as he did uh, the promise needed that the uh, the guilt of sin would be overcome. And so now he comes to his second point, but he's already really begun it. So this is a, uh, shall we say, a fairly clumsy arrangement. If you were uh, blocking out this sermon and uh, highlighting your firstly, secondlies, thirdlies, your main points and your sub points, whatever it might be, you might say this is a little bit shoddy. This isn't quite as neat and tidy as we might wish. And, and I would agree with you. But there's an earnestness still that needs to be appreciated. And there is, if you if you break it down, you can see what the preacher is trying to do. You can see the logic of of it. Here's the promise of God. Here's why we need this promise with regard to the guilt that still remains on the conscience of a forgiven man or woman. And here's why you need a promise also to the Christian who goes on struggling with remaining sin in our hearts. So just because the presentation is a little shabby, just because the sequence here is uh, a little bit uh, uneven, let's not lose sight of the, the the careful logic and the thoughtfulness that is at least in the intention of the preacher. And that's a good reminder for those of us who do preach. Not that we can afford to be careless with our structure, with our logic, but that even if our presentation isn't what it might be, yet we still need to have this kind of thoughtful pattern behind this careful handling of the text, the, the structuring of our thoughts, and the comfort then that if we do botch it, then the God of salvation is able to use even our uh, clumsiness yet for his glory. And so let's pick up the threads then here with regard to sanctification rather than justification. Here's a promise for you in the text. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So, says Spurgeon, we're talking about a time when there'll be no propensity, no inclination to sin left in any one of God's people. This is the perfection. And it's a great doctrine of the Christian religion, which always ought to be kept prominent, says the preacher, that everyone who believes in Christ by believing receives a promise of being totally set free from the indwelling of sin in his nature. And this is what is called progressive sanctification. The uh, teaching that uh, by degrees, the sinner who has been set free from the penalty of of sin, and in one sense absolutely from the reigning power of sin, nevertheless is now making progress toward holiness in themselves by virtue of the power of Christ's Spirit 
at work in their redeemed hearts. And says Spurgeon, I'm going to concentrate on what I believe God says about this progressive sanctification. Three things that it doesn't mean. This purging, this cleansing of our nature will not be done in the antinomian way by calling good evil and evil good. You can't just change the labels of behaviour and then say that's what holiness looks like. No, God is a God of holiness. Let a child of God do what he will, say some. What was sin in another man is no sin to him. That is nonsense. Darkness in a child of God is darkness not light. The bitter in the child of God is bitter and not sweet. What is injustice before God in any man is injustice in a child of God. So you cannot then basically relabel sin as holiness. You cannot say, just because I'm a Christian, I'm not sinning, even though what I do is sin. And you might say, well, who would think that? The fact is that although they might not put it in that language, far too many. But a second thing, neither is the way in which the blood of believers is cleansed, as some say, by the changing of their old nature. Now, I think we need to be careful here, and Spurgeon isn't always very clear in this regard, but his point is, I think, let me give you in his words, the old nature never did change and never will. Old Adam, ever since he fell, was earthly, sensual, and devilish. He will be the same as long as we live, depend on it. And the common experience of Christian proves that their nature does not get one whit better. Now he's trying to contrast between the old nature and the new nature. And he wants us to understand that uh, the, the old man still needs to die. That it's not as if God has transformed the old man and is working on him. No, the old man is dead and dying. Rather, there is a new nature in us. And so it's not then a a gradual reformation of what we once were that is real progress in holiness. That's a, a careful distinction I think he's trying to make. Again, I'm not sure he makes it particularly clearly, but He wants us to understand that there is going to be this battle with sin in our hearts. And it's not that we can somehow then say, well, I I hope this rabid dog will somehow get a bit better and maybe stop foaming at the mouth and biting people. No, the old nature is a nature of sin. And yet once again, his third negative, God does not make the new nature any better. He says the believers are partakers of the divine nature and as divine that cannot be improved. The new principle which God implants in regeneration is as good as it can be. It is a seed as we are told and that seed which cannot sin because it is born of God. The old nature cannot be good. The new nature cannot be bad. The new nature can by no means sin for it is a spark of the divine purity. Now, again, I'm not sure that he's quite as clear on this or perhaps even quite as scriptural as he could be. But he's trying to make the point that this transformation within us is is the introduction of a principle which in itself is 
divine, that when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, when God gives us this new nature, it is indeed born from above, that it's not some kind of uh, bastard production, that it's not some kind of uh, mix and match, but rather that there is this new nature which is wholly inclined unto righteousness, even though it has not yet attained it. But, says Spurgeon, if we could then have this cleansing of our blood, what would it look like? What would it look like if we began to make this kind of progress? And again, I'm not sure quite where he's drawing the lines here, but he presents this uh, this dream, he calls it, this sort of uh, vision of what it might be in a church that knew more, not just of the cleansing of the conscience, but of a conquering of remaining sin. What then if the minister's blood were wholly cleansed? What if you had a perfect minister? What a pulpit, what a power, what a very incarnation of the love of Christ there would be. What preaching it would be, what exhortations to Christians, what solemn earnestness, what pleading with sinners. What a consequence if the officers of the church as a whole had their blood cleansed. No mistakes, no confusions. What a church we would be. Perfect members freed from sin. No denominations would break up into sections. And then perfect believers. What a power against the darkness and iniquity of this vast city. A perfect church. What joy, what peace. Now, it may be that that Spurgeon, I think he's probably thinking here in terms of some of his uh, sort of millennial uh, inclinations. It is only Christ's coming, he says, that can make a millennium. Uh, but he, he, I hope you can pick up something of his desire and appetite for the, the progress of the gospel, not just in the world at large, but in the hearts of God's people, this longing for holiness. He said, I, as I was dreaming, I thought how different everything would be if our blood would, were wholly cleansed, how thankful we would be how content we would be, how joyful we would be, how humble we would be, how kind we would be, how wonderful this world would be, how new heaven would seem to us. There would be rents in the firmament, he says, through which we would see the glory of God, windows without curtains or blinds to shut out the vision of angels and of the King of kings, a perfect eye to see through clouds and mists and see God himself. He says, oh, well, I can't get there, says someone. I'll never reach that stage. Uh, no, sir, I can never think that I shall be perfectly free from sin. And he says, you will, because Christ has undertaken to do it. Now, again, you may have some differences of opinion as to precisely when and under what circumstances Christ will do it, but every believer knows and should know, and you can know if you're a Christian, that Christ has undertaken to make you perfect. He has promised that he shall present the church to himself as his spotless bride, having neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit is engaged to undertake it. He has come into this world, says Spurgeon, like purifying rain. God's honour needs it because unless he destroys the works of the devil, his honour is not perfect. If he doesn't make you completely free from all, kind, all kinds of sin, then Christ has not completed his work and it is finished is an empty brag. 
So he says, says Spurgeon, put your hand upon that promise and say, this certifies it. My soul, he says, can scarcely get the thought into its mind. But, great God, with my finger this day upon that promise, I do believe that you will cleanse my blood which you have not cleansed. And so, some practical exhortations to finish. First of all, if God has promised that the old nature shall thus be removed and we shall be purged, let us struggle against our corruption, confident that we shall get the victory, and let us pray against our corruptions more than we ever have done. Now we see what lies ahead. Now we have a promise to plead. Now we have a God to look to in this particular sphere and anticipate that he will bless us. And so he says, in closing to the sinner, he who believes in Christ may claim this text for himself. Do you believe? And this text is yours as well as mine and shall be fulfilled to every one of us today and in the last day and in day without days in glory everlasting. That's the hope. That's the confidence. That's the expectation. Well, as I've said, it may not be Spurgeon's neatest sermon. There may be parts of it, as there will often be in many preachers where we say, "Mm, I'm not sure I can go the whole way with that, or uh, I wouldn't take it quite in that way. But perhaps I can encourage you as I would encourage myself Whatever may be our remaining questions, whatever may be the uh, points at which we might say, yep, not going to go quite down that route, can we at least look forward with confidence to the fulfilment of such a promise as Spurgeon interprets it? And that it should give us an appetite for the kind of holiness which is a proper reflection of the holiness of our God and an anticipation worked out both in striving, in practice, and in prayer for the overcoming of all sin in us. Let's take confidence then that when God has said he forgives our sins, they are indeed forgiven and live accordingly, and let us strive to overcome sin that remains in us. I trust there's been something in this of profit for you and for your soul And I hope that you'll join us again next time as, God willing, we look at the Missionary's Charge and Charter, Sermon 383, in this first volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, as we continue to look at sermons from the heart of Spurgeon, speaking of Christ and his so great salvation. Thanks for joining us and hope to be with you again next time. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.